Blue, 42. Blue, 42. Omaha, Omaha. Set, hut. Well, Paul, that really looked like it's a first down for Spooner. All right, first down. Huddle up, huddle up. Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner. Welcome back, listeners. Paul and Dan here. We have some excellent guests today. Becky Hilbert is back joining us, our wonderful sports medicine director. Hello. And much more importantly, Jesse Ellis is joining us today. Jesse, thank you for being here. Very excited to be here. So Jesse is a physical therapist who is formerly the director of player health and performance for the Portland Trailblazers, as well as a director of physical therapy for Exos. So brings a wealth of sports med knowledge and will be speaking at our second annual huddle, March 10th and 11th. So if you want to hear and learn more from him, please come join us. Lots of awesome speakers, lots of awesome topics. And at the huddle, Jesse's going to be speaking about about ACL rehab. Today we're going to go a little bit into a very important and specific piece of many different rehabs, but ACL in particular, uh, acceleration and deceleration. So Jesse, I just kind of want to leave this off a little bit with what are you looking for when you're testing deceleration? How do you test that? So, I mean, you look at general capacity of performance and it's broken down to acceleration, deceleration, maximum speed, and change of direction. And for, let's talk about, let's just talk about knees. Deceleration is one of the tougher things to get back to. There's a lot of confidence that needs to be ingrained when you, you get back to that movement pattern because there's so much torque and force production that's required to the quad itself. And a lot of times with rehabs, the quad isn't trained well enough. And acceleration, you'll start to see them accept that movement pattern easier because it's not as demanding to the knee. But once you tell them to stop, it's it's a different ball game. So uh, I'm glad to talk about this because a lot of times this is a missed portion of your return to play progressions. When you're talking about that, where you know, let, let's 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 just go straight to the research because that's what a lot of people want to talk about when they're when they're looking for return to play is well, what does the research tell us? Because if the research doesn't tell me, I'm not going to do it. And then the second component would be, well, it's related to time. If they're a certain duration post surgery, they're cleared to start these activities, which I think we all know is not the right answer. They have to earn it. So let, let's go to the research first, and, and what do you see? in the literature as kind of the the gold standard tests, for lack of a better word, that would tell you from a deceleration standpoint that somebody is ready, does have adequate strength or other precursors that would say they are even then ready to start testing. Yeah. So I want to make clear any type of testing for return to play is not an end product. It is actually should be done in the intermediate phase of rehab because there should never be any guesses towards the end of rehab to see if they're okay. It is a continuum throughout the process. So early on, 
are they able to generate enough torque isometrically to that quad? That's your first check. How much per, basically based on the relative body weight, you want to see at least two to even four times your body weight to see if they can produce that isometrically. That is a very standard test. If guys, if people are not testing their athlete, even on the standard isometric test at 60 degrees, that's just, you're, you're missing out on so such an easy test to at least look at capacity to generate torque. But you want to look at the eccentric capacity. So getting them on an isokinetic dynamometer and seeing how much they can actually resist the uh, isolated movement to the quad. You want to, again, see pretty high numbers for that. And there's nothing that you can really reproduce that is much better than locked in on an isokinetic where they can't get away and they can't utilize their hip. Because a lot of this research shows that if you're coming off an ACL, you're going to have a stronger hip than your knee, than your than your quad. It is it is going to happen. You're going to compensate and gen, generally take on more force to your hip. It's called a quad uh, avoidance strategy, and it's very common. So you got to hit your numbers on your isolated profile, force profile, isometrically, eccentrically, and then for D cells, a 505 agility test is very simple. And I think that that's something that can easily be done in the field. But the thing that I like about this, and this is uh, an add-on that I learned from Eric Mera, which is getting them to translate, so getting them to wrap around a cone both directions, because you're going to see a little bit better of the penultimate step, so the second to last step. As they wrap around that cone, you go from the left and then to the right, you're gonna see there might be a, a, re a reduced uh, timing to the injured leg. So usually the inside knee is the knee that's going to be slower. I like you especially bringing up a bit of the ISO uh, kinetic testing, and it's interesting. Something I think we all have seen a lot in therapy is people tend to swing a pendulum one way or another. You either do something or something comes out and they don't like it, and people swing completely away from things. And you did a very nice job speaking to the benefit of it. It might not be the end-all, be-all, but I think too often I hear people talk about isokinetic testing, and they're like, oh, no, that's not functional. That doesn't help us. And you, you already spoke to it, but I, just, I think it's worth reiterating. What do you respond to people that say, no, no, that's not functional? that doesn't actually help me for my sport. I, I think the thing that you've got to remember is a lot of these athletes are masters at compensation. So any functional tests that you have them do, how do we validate that that's actual quad function? And torque production is functional. I don't care if it's seated in a knee extended position, if they can't produce in a very controlled environment, why would you think that they could do anything on a functional test or even with sports-specific movement if they can't do it on a seated knee extension where you have all the parameters under control? Why would you think there would be any more benefit to do it from the field? So related to that, because I think it's a huge component that often is missed for the therapist that doesn't have access to that isokinetic like setup. Is there a modification in the clinic that they could use with a microfet or something along those lines again, that, that can be at least give them that, that 
quote-unquote objective number and maybe it's not as pure as you know strapping them down but is there a recommendation that you have again let's say the majority of our listeners throughout the country may have access to a microfet but don't have access to a cybex cybex isokinetic yeah testing machine that's a great question because those things cost thirty to fifty thousand dollars right. and for you to get that on your <laughs> Uh, wish list is just not realistic. It's on my wish list. So, I'm not um, so handheld dynamometer with a strong fixation because if you're going to do isometric testing, if it's going to be a quad, you best not be holding the handheld dynamometer because you're not testing the actual knee strength. You're testing you, how hard you can hold against the resistance. So you need to set up with rigid uh, straps, have a strong fixation, and start out with a 60 degree knee extension isometric. That is a basic thing that you can do. Um, and then from there, um, you know, you can, the, the other thing that we haven't talked about is, it's not so much all about testing. The isokinetic should be also a training stimulus. If you don't have isokinetics, you need a seated knee extension machine where you can train the knee again isolated strengthening to the quad. So you can get some measurements of endurance with that. You can stack it up, see how many times they can do it compared to the other side. These are some more primitive ways to do it. You still can, you know, see how much maximally they can extend or just, you know, have them do 10 to 15 reps and compare it to the other way. Um, and then force plates are something that are a little bit more accessible now. Those are eight seven, eight grand, that's a little bit more reasonable to ask in the clinic. And you can do a mid-thigh isometric pull and you can see how, how much force they can produce in that nice, you know, 30 to 40 degrees of knee flexion, which is what you want to see anyway, because that's usually your, your bad provocative position for an ACL tear. So, and it's a good measurement of rate of force development, the mid-thigh. So let's say that they prove that on their isokinetic isokinetic testing or force plate or handheld dynamometer. And like you said, I agree, uh, most of us are not strong enough nor big enough to be able to withstand the force of somebody's quad when they're doing a max effort. Yep. So those numbers are, are, are where you want to see what's your next step, what's your next test or go-to on that progression and that that continuum sure. to to see on that start stop you know are they ready to start on that yeah i think you know there are some very standard tests that we do you get your your hop test for distance you can do your six meter hop test you can do your triple hop test all of these are very very practical and can be done by anybody uh the thing that i'm going to stress is yeah they are valuable but you have to make sure that you're actually watching the test. <laughs> because most of the time, the clinician will stare at the tape measure to see where they land. And what they don't do is they do not see the sequence of how confident they were. Um, did they start out with more distance on their first jump and then slowly reduce because they know they, know they have to stop? Um, was it a stiff knee landing, which now tells you that it's not accepting of the quad, so there is there an issue there? And they still, they're compensators, they will figure out a way to match the distance. So there's a study that was done and they looked at the percent of 
uh, involvement was a linear hop. And they found concentrically, so not worried about landing, just propulsion, that the knee for a linear hop only is 13% involved. Hmm. 40% to the hip. Now, deceleration, the knee had 65% of, of the involvement to that movement was to land, was the quad. So if you're looking concentrically, if you're looking at the propulsion only, the knee has hardly done anything. And again, if the quality of the test is not done right, they can really hop forward with those first two in that last one where they need to challenge the knee. Well, now you don't get that full picture. I just want to thank you for saying that. It's one of my biggest pet peeves. We see someone do a triple hop or a Y balance or something else, and you look, and they're just fixated and staring at the ground intently, like the foot's going to do all the motion and movement and have no idea what's happening, knee, hip, further out the chain. So thank you for bringing that piece up. It also goes into, like you talked about, compensations. And as you said, athletes are the master compensators. Are there certain things you see more frequently or certain common compensations you're looking for when someone is unable to decelerate appropriately? Yeah. It's your classic provocative, you know, you could call it your provocative position because that's usually how you tear it, but um, you also look at it as a quad inhibition strategy or, or an avoidance strategy, but basically it's a stiff knee. So you're looking at a 20 degrees of knee flexion versus a nice, more, uh, more of a soft landing at about 30 to 40 where there's some, at least some control happening to the um, knee. And then also there's going to be a higher... Um, hip flexion angle, because you're trying to get the glute to take on some of the force. And that's okay, because athletes will compensate in sport. If the quad's not strong enough, if you have enough time, they'll figure out how to stop. Now, when the parameters have been reduced, and now the timing has been cut in half, and they can't include their hip with the deceleration motion, that's where you have an injury. That's where you have an ankle sprain. That's where you have an ACL tear. That's where you have a blown knee um, because you're, you're basically all that ground reaction force is traveling up to the knee. And the soleus is such a critical muscle to um, dissipate the initial force. And if that soleus isn't doing its job and you have a, a higher fl- hip flexion angle, trying to get your glute to do it, it's just, it's not good. Do you have specific ways you like to train the soleus to be prepared for this task? I know you mentioned before, it's important to realize this isn't just like a one-stop shop of test, move on to the next thing, test, move to the next thing. It's yeah. a continuum of being sure people are prepared. And that is a challenging thing and a challenging muscle to address. Are there ways you'd like to go about helping people be successful with appropriate soleus use yeah. in any form of running? So, you know, I feel like any PT can be humbled by trying to train the soleus. <laughs> You can concur. You can be like, all right, do this, and the patient will be like 30, 40 reps. Like, I'm not tired because there's so much type one muscle fibers. It has the most endurance based muscle uh, architecture out of the body. So, with soleus, I want to load it because I want to challenge. So, you're looking at 80 to 90% one rep max and get that thing tired. So it's more weight than you think to get an actual training um, influence to the soleus. Now, the other thing I like to do um, is you need to include the soleus with the quad. 
It's a synergistic relationship because those two are going to work with deceleration. So a lot of the things I train with the quad, I'll do my isolated quad work, but then there's things functionally that I need them to be in a plantar flex position where they're holding the soles engaged and then doing some form of a lunge sequence, squat sequence. You can do your, your slant board. You can also do floating where the heel is floating. Now they have to engage with the plantar flexors to hold it and then do your quad base work. So including that relationship is really critical. Yeah, I think I saw one that you posted here earlier this week with basically a rear foot elevated split squat with their front foot on a, um, uh, a weight plate. Yeah. Heel was floating, and then they're doing an either an isometric hold or they're doing repetitive plantar flexion. Yep. And uh, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. I've utilized that with a couple of my patients this week with a significant level of success because, again, I've struggled just like so many other people of how do I get that soleus to engage when it's going to be fatigued and help you know provide support on the deceleration as well as that posterior chain involvement. So I do have to give credit where credit is due. Well, Thank you for that one. I appreciate yeah, no it. No problem. I don't know that my patients enjoy it, <laughs> uh, yeah. but it, know, it is, that's hugely beneficial. Yeah. It's, it's a good strategy and love them or hate them, but the, the to- knees over toes guy, he's done a really good job. And the thing that most PTs were so scared to do, which was get the knees over the dang toes and actually load the quad. So it's interesting that we have this celebrity, I don't know, I don't know if he's a strength coach or what he is, but I don't know what um, he is either. But he's changed the game with even the PT world, which is good because we need to we need to load the quad. And that's something that I think we're becoming more aware of. Five years ago, ten years ago, it was all about the hip. Yeah. It's all about strengthening the hip abductor. And there's research to show that it doesn't really matter so much about the frontal plane mechanics. It's the the injury to the knee is it's more of a excessive um, amount of compression to the knee. Because the ground the ground reaction forces travel up and if you compress that knee so much, that tibia, it'll slacken the ACL and it'll tear them. So it's not so much about how much there's a drift of dy- uh, dynamic valgus. It's the forces travel up so, there's so much that it slackens the ligament system and it tears. So one of the things you talked about a little bit before uh, we started podcasting was the importance of making sure that when you're looking at deceleration, they're actually up to an appropriate speed and Absolutely. actually decelerating the, the mass that they'll be needing to decelerate in an actual sporting event, yes. which obviously requires acceleration. <laughs> so yes. let's flip over to that a little bit. What are you looking for on the acceleration side of things? So acceleration in general is a, it's a, it's a concentric base movement pattern and it's likely something that you can introduce earlier for your knee knee patients versus your d-cell um, because it's just easier to complete that motion it's less stress the knee and they're in more control as in if you were asking to stop there's a little bit more of a you know dynamic component to stopping versus knowing when to start is pretty easy so acceleration you look at this as you gotta first off you gotta look at the sport at hand and what you're trying to get that patient to get to in basketball itself they hardly accelerate because it's such a fast-paced game and it's really based on deceleration 
versus in football, acceleration's a much needed task, uh, more, more specific task that you need to have. So in basketball, I may not look at acceleration as much, and or I may look at just the first few steps of acceleration. But in general, if, you know, as you accelerate off the line, at around the six stride mark, you're at about 70% of your maximum velocity. At around 11 to 12, you're at about your max, max velocity, and you have a nice upright position where now it's more of a hamstring-derived um, running sequence versus before it's a very horizontal-driven, and you're looking at the force velocity profile of this so in acceleration you you're fighting inertia early on so you're starting from a dead stop and you're pushing forward so there's going to be a higher amount of ground contact time which means you can generate more force and as you take more steps there's going to be less ground contact time and it starts to transition into a more upright position so initially you need to see how they tolerate with a horizontal drive and you know the sequences how fast can they get off the line that's something you can test for sure so early on when you're introducing acceleration with the patient what's your strategy to help them build that confidence are you starting them from a Becca just gave me an evil eye because I think I just stole her question, but sorry, too bad. Are, are you helping them from a, a walk to a jog to a percentage of max, which I know that there's yeah. evidence that doesn't support if you tell them to go 25% or 50%, but like versus starting it from a dead stop because of the force requirements, like what are your thought yeah. processes on, on that from kind of a when and I might use both or I only use one type of approach. If I'm looking at it as a, a calf-based injury, I'm much more concerned about a dead start because that's a, that's a dominant quad, calf, and glute exercise or, or at least functional expectation. But um, if it was an Achilles, if it was a strained calf, there's going to be some running starts, some buildups for, for sure. Even patellofemoral or even like a quad strain. Like again, I don't want to have them push from a, from a dead stop because it's a lot of force production that's required. So early on, and also just a confidence thing for you as a clinician, it's probably best that you just have them go into a running start just to see their tolerance and then you go from there. I'm just curious, especially on the acceleration side, and this is probably a little bit further down the rehab line, but any considerations you like for footwear? So in particular, if you have like a football player or a soccer player that might be playing on turf or grass, and we're looking at cleats of different varying lengths, yeah, things you take into consideration preparing them for that type of challenge. Hmm. <laughs> That's a good question because I don't really think about that as much because most of the athletes that I work with, they tell me what footwear they're going to wear. Um, it's not so much that I have an actual um, skin in the game for that decision. So <laughs> more more muscle function along those lines. Yeah. Are you considering differences I mean, in how it, how it functions? Yeah, if, if you look at it, if you have a more rigid shoe, there's going to be, you're going to have more mechanical advantage for the calf. Unless it's something that's more of a flexible shoe, it's going to be a little bit more at a disadvantage. It's going to require a little bit more muscle production. So, you know, it just matters on, they, they say that with sprinting, you're going to want a rigid shoe. And it, it, it kind of, if you have that profile of like a mid foot stiffness, it, it, it increases that lever even further so they can push off a little bit further and harder. So if you're just looking purely at sprinting, more of a rigid 
um, footwear. I just care about confidence and what they, they, they feel good in. So to speak to confidence. Uh, welcome, Becca. Welcome to the podcast, <laughs> So you work with the highest level athletes. You've worked with professional athletes. I think oftentimes people think, okay, they just they just go right back and do it. How often when you're working with those types of athletes, are you making sure they feel confident mentally? So not so much the physical aspects. I think often we know our athletes can do more physically than they're sometimes prepared to mentally. How often are you checking in with them? Are there certain things you'll just notice? Like, are you asking, you know, how they're feeling that day? And you'll kind of get a feel for, are they ready to go maybe to the next level of the programming or are they feeling confident that day? How often? Cause I think with professional athletes, everybody just thinks, Oh, whatever the short, shortest time you know period is for whatever injury they have they're going right back in they don't care they don't think about it and yeah. i just curious what your thoughts are so context is king in this situation because you have to know who are the involved party members in this decision is the player feeling some heat from upper management from coaching how long have they been out or is there a, a collaborative uh uh, effort amongst the whole staff that we care about this athlete. We don't really care about timelines. We just need to make sure he's safe and healthy. So I think culture is big on that. So if you're talking about team setting, is everyone on board? Or are there some passive aggressive things happening to the athlete now that now they may not answer truthfully? They may make it sound better than it is. But then the other thing is you got to be aware of as a clinician is is the athlete faking it faking the confidence to return that's even more dangerous and that's where you need to be on the field watching them do their movement and that's why testing is so important because isokinetic testing i don't care how confident you are that doesn't look good you're not able to produce enough peak force that i feel good that you're returning it's very objective and there's no emotion to it. Um, and then watching them go through movements, challenging. So knowing sport, knowing this, the demands of whatever is injured and you know, set up tasks that you need to see that this looks clean. And then having that open dialogue um, is important because I think with athletes, if you're with them on the court, on the field, and you're on their turf, they're going to be more open to talking about what they're feeling versus if you're in a sterile, cold environment in the rehab world and you're asking about how to practice go or how did this go, they may not be as forthcoming because A, they may not have remembered exactly what happened in the moment, but two, they may not be at ease to tell you as much because it's not the environment that they're comfortable in. Okay, Jesse. So again, during show prep, we kind of talked about the different components of running and really the demands from concentric, eccentric, isometric. And so I kind of went, and it was very enlightening to me. It's something that I hadn't really thought of or conceptualized in any way, shape or form ever previously. So I kind of want you to enlighten our listeners on your thought process of what happens in the running phases and, and how you came to that conclusion um, over yeah. time. Yeah. So, you know, to be a simpleton and to make running, looking at it from a practical lens, acceleration is a very concentric demand, demand task. 
absolute strength where you're more in an upright position is more of an isometric load to your hamstrings and also your, your calf musculature. Your top speed, you're using your basically you're off the ground much more so you have less ground contact time which is then requiring the stretch shortening cycle to propulse you forward so tendon and basically the elasticity of your body is with the basic absolute strength or sorry absolute speed and then with deceleration that is much more of a heavy eccentric phase and eccentrically you're going to look at the penultimum step and the anti-penultimum step. So the second to last step and the third to last step. Because the research shows that if you can, if you are more efficient with your early deceleration, you're gonna have less injuries. And um, it's just, you're gonna be, you're just gonna be safer. Unless if you're inefficient on the early part of your deceleration, you're putting so much more demand on the last two steps. And that's where things can go wrong. So the higher skilled athletes know when to stop in a more efficient manner. And they show that if you are really good at acceleration, you're likely gonna be better at deceleration which is interesting, but you're, you know, who's the kid on uh, Mighty Ducks where he could just skate fast? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> he couldn't stop at all. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember his name, but I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. They set up the, the, the cans to yeah, not yeah. <laughs> plow through them. Oh, but yeah. Classic. In, in reality, if you can accelerate and, and you can generate a lot of speed, you're generally good at stopping too, because you're probably a better skilled athlete in general. That makes sense. So in general, yeah, I just look at it as what phase are we in right now? Are we focusing on acceleration? Well, then let's focus on that in the weight room as well. So concentric work and how do we carry that over to sprinting? Um, you can also do heavier type of lifting in the weight room, which then will drop some of the neural, basically some neural inhibition to the body, which then will get you to run faster because that neural, that nervous system is not going to hold you back as much. So you are going to be a little bit more prone to running at higher velocities. So um, that's the continuum. Concentric, top speed, you're much more of a elasticity, like using your tendons and your stretch shortening cycle and the D cell is stretch shortening cycle and then also your eccentric capacity. Cool. I like it. And we had a lot of great ideas and topics and principles and things we've gone through and some awesome testing. I am curious because I know you have an awesome exercise library as well in your brain. Are there certain things you'd like to recommend going through certain exercises you find very beneficial with training some of these uh, tasks? Because that is a, a deficit we frequently see therapists have coming out of school yeah. and have a hard time building up is their exercise library. So what do you like to go to on that type of program? Yeah, so I would say for concentric, um, I, you know, you're working on on generating force that's that's the key right so I would I like to do weighted uh, weighted jumps drop jumps uh, sorry box jumps so weighted drop uh, box jumps where you are holding weight but you're not having to land you're cutting the landing in half so you're concentrically with weight landing on a box but it's all about the propulsion so that's a real simple one and it's also safe because you're cutting the landing in half so now as a PT you feel a little bit safer to load this person up 
Um, the other one is um, any kind of like a, a clean pull from the knees. It's not your standard Olympic lift, but you're generating a rapid amount of force and you're pulling that barbell up just into a shrug position. And the research shows that that's probably one of the most um, beneficial exercise for rate of force development. Hmm. So it's an easy pattern. You can you can have them hold a barbell and just shrug up and use that that hip and knee. Um, also, mid thigh pull isometric pull is good for rate of force development. So those are really good to do. Um, and then I like to do anything that's combining, like I said, the um, the complex of the quad and calf together synergistically. Um, for deceleration, if we're talking about that, I, you know, some people hate the Smith machine. I don't know if you guys have one or if you're throwing them all away. I don't know if we I have one. I don't think we have one in any of our clinics. I don't, not that I'm aware of. Well, yeah. you should find them because it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's so funny because, you know, you throw away these pieces of equipment that everyone says, oh, it's not functional. Well, the reason why I like the uh, Smith machine is it's, you don't have to control the path of the barbell. You don't have to control it at all. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a nice carryover to having them load the quad and calf sequence, but with a bar path that they know and you can load it a little bit more comfortably knowing that they can, if they need help, you can stack it off and you can move forward with it. So um, I like that and then doing some drops from there. So like a single leg drop jump or sorry, a, a drop squat where they're holding the weight and they're dropping down. You can also do that with a trap bar where you have some weight and you drop them into a quarter squat or maybe a half squat. Um, so those are good. You can do deceleration lunges where you're, you know, accelerating them forward and they have to, you know, control the velocity. Um, seated knee extensions, eccentrics. So when you're doing eccentrics, like, it should be hard for them to like hold that weight. So you go up with two and down with one, but that's, it has enough weight that they cannot hold it. It's too heavy for them to hold it. That's the level that you need to get to for eccentrics. Well, I love those ideas too, because I, I know for me personally, one of the biggest deficits in my career that I, I took too long to acknowledge and recognize was my inability to load my athletes. Yeah. I was not loading them to a high enough level. And you gave some great suggestions. We forget the power of like, thinking about box jump up. We think, oh, that's so hard. You, you think up's challenging, but you take away that eccentric load, that D-cell component of things. You're talking about doing the, the bar that we actually know the past with the Smith machine successful ways to help load people earlier when i made that transition i saw much better results and particularly along the time frame yeah. that my athletes are covered so important important uh suggestions that i know i personally missed for sure and i think we can all benefit from utilizing that more frequently well and I, it's always great to have new exercises and thought processes and rationale as to why yeah. so i appreciate you not just dropping exercises but saying here's why i do it and here's the reason I do it. One, it kind of goes back to Becca's question about confidence. You put, you know, a couple hundred pounds on a bar and they're doing a, a hex trap bar drop, but it's a couple hundred pounds. All of a sudden in their head, they're going, I'm moving a couple hundred pounds, even though you're controlling the range of motion at which they're moving it. But it still assists with that confidence because 
we know the, what the evidence is on the ground reaction forces when you run and jump and how much they really have to accept. Yeah. And if you're working with a couple hundred pound or 300 pound athlete, now all of a sudden you're talking six, seven, 800 pounds that they're going to be managing during their task. Now it's not external, but it still is. And then I think that you go back to that point of inability to, to absorb the ground reaction force through the tibia. And that's what's causing a lot of injury. Is it coming back to, well, did we not load them enough during their rehab process or even their training process? Are we not loading them enough in the off season to prepare them for that task at hand to accept all of those forces repetitively during the duration of their season? Yeah. I also don't... Everyone, everyone deals with this with exercise, so don't feel bad about like shit. I, I didn't uh, load them accordingly because I think in general the PT setting is it's a product of the environment and it's the product of the professional barriers that we deal with on a day-to-day basis as we drop with insurance reimbursement and less visits. Why would we as PTs? feel like we could get through that continuum of return to play and then we're we're you know there's it's fear-based as well like sometimes you don't want to hurt an individual and sometimes when you push performance that happens so there's some things that you know instinctively is causing pts not to do the thing that they should if it's litigate you know liability and insurance issues right. etc so and caseload yeah how many patients are you seeing that's <laughs> also true yeah. now i have to ask the how do i become you when i grow up question because <laughs> <laughs> so, it's a common question that i don't get no one cares about me but the thing i do get a lot of is the new grads like sports medicine i want to go into sports medicine i'm interested in sports medicine we hear it all the yeah. time becca is probably yes time. just loving that one but it's a valid question. Yeah. Often I hear the whole like, oh, what course series, what course in there? I don't think there's one single course, but I'm curious, your recommendations are like, how do you go about developing the knowledge base to be successful yeah. with athletes, knowing that eventually there's a lot of sports specialization to discuss at some point? Yeah, yeah. I can't say one course. Uh, I can say that it all comes from authentic mentorship and finding the people that um, are in the day-to-day, in, in the grind, They've had a lot of experience behind their belt. Um, my my mentor uh, Tim Farron, he called himself the coal miner. Like he's he's in the coal. He's he's basically in the cave working, and he doesn't have a huge name, but the guy's overly talented in what he does. And I I think that you need to seek out the people. And once you see those people, you just gravitate to them because they're just a different breed. Um, and they're not the um, classic salesmen that they're going to sell you things. It's just the authenticity of who they are and how they care about their their caseload and their patients. So I would I would consider that. I did a fellowship, so I think that in my case, it was very, very valuable. It got me to a different level of clinical reasoning that I never would have acquired if I hadn't taken a fellowship. So, um, you know, I, I'm going to... Send, you know, send some kudos to Exos. I think Exos does a good job on a performance. So if PTs want to understand performance, they do a good job of understanding progression and regression of movement patterns. And it at least is a, um, a paradigm that we can, you know, introduce performance. So it's, it's not a bad, um, you know, methodology to kind of look at. 
Um, you know, I know you guys are heavy Gary Gray, and he does some great stuff. I've never really taken a course, but you know, I do appreciate understanding and taking the triplanar assessment of movement and appreciating all the dynamic chaos of, of what you see in the field and on the court. So that's you know, and then social media is very, you know. It's a double-edged sword. You can get a lot of good stuff and good content, and then there's a lot of garbage. The, the key is not just so much understanding exercise, but the reason behind it, the clinical reasoning, and actually have that foundation. So, you know, I'm starting something right now called the Rehab Code, and that's something that I, I care about. It's not so much the top 10 exercises for your rotator cuff. It's about the reasoning behind things, looking at the physics, looking at the biomechanical um, stressors that that the body's dealing with, and kind of get that that foundation. Well, and I think that component of it is huge because, yeah, there's lots of exercises out there. Yeah. But some of them you look at and you're like, why in the world would anybody ever want to do that? Why in the world would anybody ever need to do that? And again, not to knock social media, but sometimes they don't have the ability to articulate why they're doing what they're doing. Some of it's the confines of social media and the limitations that are there. Sometimes I think it's just out of, again, don't take this the wrong way, but out of laziness of the person who's producing those videos and what their mean is, what their end goal is on producing a bunch of exercise videos. Are they doing it to help somebody understand the why or are they doing it to spread their own personal brand yeah. and and again I'm not knocking if they're trying to spread their own personal brand because they can make money off of that and I'm not against anybody yeah. trying to make money off of it but what I appreciate about the content that you've put out that I that I followed is you're telling me why you're doing something and now I can say huh hadn't thought about that I'm going to go and I'm going to play with it and I'm going to see who does it work for because I understand now the why because you helped me understand the why or you challenged why I might not use that or why I continue to use that, which just adds another layer that oftentimes I feel is missed, but really necessary. Social media is the great equalizer, <laughs> right? We don't, you don't know the resume, you don't know the actual experience of the person, but for some reason they have become an expert in something because of the viewership. And sometimes they make decisions about what they post based on, is it something that's gonna be liked and spread? And is it actually meaningful? Is it actually something that needs to be talked about? Or is there just more, um, you know, agendas behind the, the posting of certain things. So, yeah, it's uh, it's something I've explored a little bit and still exploring, uh, but I'm doing it a little bit more unique because I'm, yeah, I'm trying to bring some quality to to the platform. Well, it's awesome and appreciated because it yeah. is needed. And I do want to highlight too, um, you know, something that I've heard consistently from a lot of therapists in the sports realm that I greatly uh, respect. Yourself, Brett Fisher, Greg Johnson, that two consistent components. One, Greg's words exactly stand on the shoulders of the giants. He likes to learn from those who come before and you spoke very well on finding the mentor, but especially, and I know I know Becca appreciates this, but look outside of your circle of your own profession. You, you talk about Exos and the strength coaches there, and I know Brett speaks extremely highly to Buddy Morris and other individuals he's learned from when it comes to rehabbing an athlete there's so many pieces the mental game the conditioning component the strength component that we are just not prepared for so finding someone that 
can help you understand those aspects better is essential if you really want to be successful in the realm. So thank you for putting some some light yeah. onto those topics. No problem. And thank you, listeners. Hopefully, you have garnered some excellent information. I know I have. If you want to hear more from Jesse, please come and join us at the Huddle again. Coming up March 10th and 11th, you can get, uh, register for it at our website, SpoonerP.com. You can also find Jesse for more info, as you said, at Rehab Code. So, Jesse, thank you so much for joining us. And thank everyone, you. thanks for listening. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 